0: By way of intro this morning, I think 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5 are really helpful. It's a great introduction because this verse, these verses in 1 Peter basically sum up what I hope to demonstrate in Luke 22 today. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark! According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And hear this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. Here's the one takeaway from this verse in in 1 Peter 1. That I want you to see, and this is pretty much the point I'm going to pull out of Luke 22. Um, Here's the point the power of God in Christ is so powerful, is so wonderful, and it's so incomparable from anything else in all of creation that you, if you are in Christ, you are guarded through the power of Christ forever by your faith. You are guarded in Him through faith. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? To consider. And this is exactly what, to an extent, we see play out in a particular way in Luke chapter 22. You know, many of us here, if we're honest, can, can feel at times, and maybe even right now, you feel beat up by life. Um, feel beat up by some of the things that come your way. Maybe you're here this morning, and for whatever reason... You're just really discouraged. Maybe you're sick. There's people in our church who are sick. We prayed for people who are sick this past uh, Tuesday in our corporate prayer time. You feel like a failure as a parent. You feel like a failure as a friend. As a son or a daughter. And, And this is something I feel a lot of times. I don't feel like I can just get ahead in life in any way. You know, I'm just very much geared by what I produce and what I do and man a lot of times I feel like I can never get everything done I just can't get ahead what's going on in my life and you know our particular rational culture does a really bad job of embracing certain aspects of what the Bible teaches but but part of why we feel this way in our lives is because we're located right in the middle and maybe more specifically in the last hour of a spiritual and cosmic war. We feel a lot of the things that we feel because we're located in the middle of the spiritual and cosmic world. War. You know, Jay talked a little bit about uh, this, this picture in Colossians 1 at the beginning of our service. He started with Colossians 1, beautiful passage about the person of Christ. And the person of Christ is demonstrated there to be the one who is sitting on the throne of all of the, the, the dominions in the world, all the principalities, all the powers. Nothing compares to him. He stands alone. But implicated in that is the fact that there are principalities. And there are powers in the world. There are demons in the world. And the scripture doesn't shy away from this is uncomfortable as oftentimes that makes us feel. That there is a spiritual battle that is happening and being played out even right now. Jesus looks at Peter. If you doubted that, listen to Jesus' words here. To Peter. He looks at Peter in verse 31 of this chapter and he says Simon, Simon, another way is it's an affectionate way of just addressing him and calling his attention to something. Simon, Simon, behold Satan demanded to have you. He demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Think about what he just says there. Peter, there's an enemy who hates you and wants you there's an enemy that wants to come against you and to destroy you in an unrelenting pursuit and assault of your soul. That's essentially what it's saying there. This narrative, it has a lot to do with Peter. It's very specific to Peter, but I want you to also see that this is not just about Peter. One reason we know that is you can't see it in the English, but this is a plural you. He says, Satan demanded to have you all Jesus is saying he demanded to have you all, as in all of you who are following me, all of the disciples. Satan demanded to have all the disciples. He looked at God and he said, I want them. Satan looks at God and he demands that he give Jesus' disciples over to him. And he says, I demanded to have you all, all the disciples, so that I might sift you like wheat. Sifting wheat is is where wheat, if, if you're familiar, I'm not, but I read about it. Sifting wheat is when you, you basically harvest it in the seed, right? And you separate the seed from the stem and the chaff, which is the non-usable part of the wheat. And what Jesus means here, essentially, like that, that phrase, basically means Satan wants to rip you apart. He wants to tear you into pieces. He wants to destroy you. The English equivalent would be tear into pieces. There's another part in the Bible, you know, as you read this, you may may be reminded of this in Job chapter 2. Job is a book full of this spiritual work being played out. The book of Job, Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. This is what it said. Satan answered the Lord and he said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. What Job 2 says, then the Lord says... To Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Job Job was struck, assaulted by the hand of Satan. And what we learn from Job, but then what we also learn from Jesus' words here to Peter, there's two things. And the first is this. It's already been communicated. Satan is seeking to destroy those who have faith in God. Seeking to destroy those who have faith in God. Satan wants to destroy the faith of God's children. I don't want to shy away from that. We live in a, in a particular cultural moment that doesn't have categories for those type of spiritual dynamics. The Bible is pushing us, pushing against those categories for us right now. That We need, we need to have this paradigm. We need to have a framework of spiritual warfare. And the way Satan does this, we see it play out through, throughout the scriptures. One way he does this is through physical and emotional suffering. There's a sense that we don't know fully all of what this means and, and how to basically decide, is this Satan or is this just the fallenness of humanity? But sickness and ailments are not just a result of sin in the garden of Eden. It's not just a result of a fallen world and humanity. Sickness and ailments and pain that we feel, real physical pain and sometimes emotional pain, is also can be an attack from Satan. Himself. It can be that. I want you to think about Luke chapter 13. Luke is a book that really shows this dynamic of spiritual warfare at play. Luke 13 introduces this woman in verse 11. A woman who had, it says, a disabling spirit for 18 years. There was something happening spiritually that physically disabled her. And it said for 18 years she was bent over. She couldn't straighten her back out. It was a major problem. And and the way that Luke paints this picture is that it's a spiritual dynamic. And in the the moments later, Jesus heals her from this spiritual problem. But it's not just physical pain, it's emotional pain. Uncertainty. Anxiety. Fear. Discouragement. There is a spiritual warfare that's actually at play oftentimes in our discouragements. That can be a satanic attack. Because one of the major things that we see play out throughout the scriptures is that the number one desire that Satan and his little demonic minions have against us is to rob us of the promises of God and cause us to doubt them. Or another way that we see this play out is through temptations towards sin. You know, our temptations towards sin a lot of times are towards very pleasurable things in this world. We want to experience the world to its fullest and oftentimes too much, overindulging. Our temptations towards sin, to the extent that they are a scheme of the enemy, which is not always the case because we are fallen and sinful. But there is an intermingledness here. When we are tempted, if if it's a scheme of the enemy, we're tempted because it's an act of hatred against us.
1: Because the enemy knows that the greatest
0: obstacle to making it to the end is if he can rob us of our hope and our faith in Christ, and one way that he can do this, one of the greatest ways that that happens, is by lulling us to sleep by the pleasures of this world. I and mean, if we've ever faced that temptation, if we've ever if there's ever been a moment in history where that's been a ready temptation for all of us, it's right now. Where we have comforts and pleasures readily and abundantly available to us everywhere you look. And that's, on a side note, that's why fasting, which we just came out of a fast as a church. You know, I would say it seems in some ways that there is a, there is a particular uh, spiritual heightenedness among a lot of people in our body right now. And I think it's because we just came out of a fast. Fasting is such a powerful spiritual discipline because it robs us for a moment of everything that's lulling us to sleep so that we can be awakened to God in a brand new way, in a way that we haven't in a while. That's why it's so important. So Satan is is seeking to destroy those who have faith in God. One, that's the first thing we see from Job and Jesus' words in Peter. But the second thing we see is that Satan only has authority to the extent that God allows it. This is a major point. We have a hard time with this, but but to make it clear, to set the record straight, there is not a dualistic framework in the Bible of good and evil. There is not two equal powers waging back and forth in a war of the ages. There is one God and everything bows to Him, even Satan, Satan makes all of his demands and he loudly prounces around and declares and flaunts his power. But at the end of the day, his rope and his leash is only to the extent that God allows it. You see this later in the chapter as well. If you don't see it there at the beginning when it says Satan demanded to have you. Who's he talking to? Satan's talking to God because he has no authority and power over us. Satan's looking at God and saying, let me have him. I demand to have him. And he's doing that because God has not allowed him to have us. And not allowed him to have Peter. But you see it even again later in the chapter when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss in verse 53. And verse 53 says this. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. And this is what Jesus declares. He goes, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour. Why is it his hour? Because God allowed it. God allowed it. There's a sense here that the betrayal of Judas and the religious leaders who are operating here in this passage as Satan's little minions running around only receive Jesus into their hands because God has allowed it to happen. This is the hour in God's inscrutable wisdom that the power of darkness is given any leash at all. And as we find out, is actually for his ultimate purposes, God's ultimate purposes. We see that play out in the coming chapters. What the enemy meant for evil, God is using for good and for his glory. When Satan thought, here's the moment where I take him out, it's over, I win. It's actually the very way Satan's head was destroyed and crushed underneath the foot of Christ. In a moment of betrayal that would lead to Christ's death, nothing was outside of the power of God. Satan's purposes in the death of Christ actually serve the purposes of God in the death of Satan. It's incredible. God is sovereign over the powers that wage against us. And although the the sovereignty of God here, which I hope that was extremely encouraging to see that, although the sovereignty of God is very encouraging, it's incredibly encouraging, nothing can rob you of your joy in Christ outside of the power of God. Nothing can come against God that's so overwhelming that it affects you in a way that God didn't plan or allow for. That's amazing. That's incredible. And I hope that encourages you. But that's not what I want us to focus on for today because there's even more here. It can be summed up in verse 32 of what I really want to look at today. And it's demonstrated later in the chapter as well, but verse 32, it, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you so that I could sit so that he could sit you like we." But look at what verse 32 says. Jesus says, "But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail." Here's the truth that I hope gives you enough power and confidence in the guarding, preserving work of Christ. That nothing can rob you of joy in Him. I hope that what you see here gives you so much faith and confidence in Christ that there's nothing that can affect that. And it's this Christ prays for you, Christ prays for us. Consider the weight of this, consider the weight of what He's saying here. God the Son prays to God the Father. For those who are his, that their faith might not fail. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus sees what's coming our way? Jesus knows the temptation. He knows the suffering that we're going to encounter. And his heart is so moved for us that he prays for us. We know this to be true as well. Because when you read John 17, we actually have an actual account of Jesus praying for us. Praying for us. Praying that we would be kept Praying that we would be united as a body. Praying that we would know Him in a, deep, in a deep way. He prays that in the Garden of Eden, right before He's about to go. And here we see in Luke 22 that He prays that this cut might not pass from Him. During His earthly ministry, Jesus prays for us. We have a record of that. Jesus values our praying because He prayed Himself. Because He prayed. And when He prayed, He prayed to the Father for us. You know, in, in, the, in the Catholic faith, there's there's a praying to to the saints as a regular practice. You know, most of the practice of praying to the saints in church history has served Catholic believers in this way. Mary, you know, here's just a good example, Mary or, or St. Patrick or, or St. Augustine. These were very godly men and women who did incredible things for the Lord. And, and generally speaking, Catholics will pray to these saints because of how great their lives were that maybe they have a a great standing before God to be able to intercede for us and maybe see prayers answered, right? But evangelical Christians don't practice this because of this verse and others. We have the the ultimate advocate at the Father. Jesus is praying for us. No one else has to do that. Jesus is praying for us. Hey, Satan demanded to, to, to have us, but Christ is praying for us. And we have the this ultimate advocate who hears us and knows us and sympathizes with us on a level that we can't even begin to imagine and he prays for us more fervently than we can ever have a category for. It's amazing. It's comforting. It's beautiful that in the face of temptation he prays for us here in the garden of Gethsemane. But even beyond that, not just the act of prayer, I want you to consider what this really actually means for us, that God does this. When we back up and we see the New Testament as a whole, there's even more. Right now, at the right hand of God, we have an advocate with the Father who is interceding for us right now. Consider this in Romans 8, 34. It says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's condemned? Jesus was raised from the grave. He died for our sins and he was raised from the grave. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us right now? Present participle right now. Or how about Hebrews 7.25? Consequently, in light of this gospel, in light of this work that Christ has done, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since... He always lives to make intercession for them. Always before the Father. Always interceding for us, His children, His brothers, His sisters. Why is the ascension so so important? Here's one reason. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and is constantly making intercession for you, believer. Constantly interceding for you, believer. Rest secure in Him. Be confident, O Christian. Jesus is praying for you. Isn't this amazing? It is so comforting, you know, if you just back up from, from Jesus. It's so comforting, just generally speaking, and it's so encouraging to hear when others are praying for us. Honestly, I think our church does that really, really well. Oftentimes, man, when I'm going through a hard situation in my life, someone in the church comes up to me and tells me they're praying. And in that moment, as I'm sure you are too, you can be filled with tons of optimism. You can be filled with tons of expectancy to know that God's probably going to show up in my life in a real way because i got a brother or sister who's praying for me. And it's also very encouraging to know that others are praying. And why? is because God tells us that and makes promises to us that He can and even probably expectantly we should believe He will heal and answer prayers, intervene in our lives through prayer. We can believe that. But things are a little bit different when we consider Jesus praying. When we hear Jesus say, I pray for you, believer. When you hear that and you hear that Jesus is praying for you, this is something much more wonderful than just one of your friends praying for you. Jesus's prayers for us are promises for us. There is a particular effectiveness to every prayer that Jesus prays on our behalf. I want you to see this. It's not just that, that Jesus knew that Peter's faith would fail. He did. That's, that's encouraging and that's, that's helpful that Jesus is all-knowing and he knows that. Peter would have this moment of fear and his, he would renounce the name of Christ and he would return. Jesus tells him he's going to do that. It's encouraging to know that God knows us that way. But I believe that what's demonstrated here is not just his all-knowingness, not just his omniscience that leads to prayer. What this passage is revealing to us is that Christ's prayer for Peter and subsequently Christ's prayer for us here in the garden when he's praying and now at the right hand of God, Christ's prayer for us at the right hand of God right now as the advocate, as the interceder, as the one who's constantly making intercession for us, Christ's prayer is effective. It's effective. In other words, it accomplishes what it seeks to accomplish when he prays. Jesus, as God, prays to the Father in line with the Father's heart because he is God. He's one with God. And therefore, his praying is not just a hoping. It's not just a begging for God to move. It is effectual. And therefore, it will happen. And therefore, it is a promise. Why is it effectual? Because Jesus won the victory on the cross where he crushed Satan's head and rendered him totally powerless. Peter's faith will not fail because there is no power greater than the power of Christ. And you, believer, who are here this morning, man, you're just struggling to open up the Bible, probably. Maybe you haven't even considered the Scripture all week long and you hate that. You who feel like you don't live a life that glorifies Christ at all. You who are terrified when you're faced with an opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe you feel afraid when you're given a chance to share the gospel. And you don't live a life that glorifies Christ and it grieves you. You believer who feel the constant darts of the enemy coming against you as assaults on your life. Here's the wonder of this passage. Jesus' prayers for us are promises that we will make it to the end if we have truly believed and are trusting in Him. They're promises. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing's going to rob us of life with Him, eternal life with Him, not even the greatest schemes of the enemy, not even the worst assaults against our souls, not even the greatest moments of discouragement that you feel, not even the worst physical suffering that any of us could imagine. Why? Why? Because Jesus prays for you. And when he prays, Lord, may his faith not fail, his prayers to God are promises that your faith will not fail. How can you know your faith won't fail? Because Jesus prays for you that it won't. It's a promise. you believe that? It doesn't alleviate us, though, from real responsibility. Because at the end of the day, we find ourselves in the context of a spiritual war. How do we fight the war that we find ourselves caught up in? How do we make sure we secure the victory? And the easy answer is this. We don't. Because Jesus has. We cling to the victor in prayer and faith. We cling to him. So when everything is going up in flames, everything in your life is going wrong, the call is not to hunker down, gird yourself up, Get strong and weather the storm. That's not the call. The call is humble reliance and prayer and faith upon God. Who has promised through the promises of the gospel. That we will make it to the end if you believed in him. Isn't it freeing to know? Isn't it freeing to know that we have a promise here? And that he's given us his Holy Spirit. To help us battle. To help us fight. If you are not in Christ, you are powerless against the enemy that wages against your soul. If you are in Christ, you have a spiritual authority over that enemy because you're a child of God. And nothing will change that. And it's not because of how great you are, it's because of what Christ has accomplished for you. Spiritual authority. So how does Jesus praying for us? Because we read a lot of, of, uh, of this is a long passage, obviously, you know, and, and, and the way we kind of broke this up is that Peter, you know, has these words spoken to him by Jesus that he's going to betray him. And then he the, the, the whole passage is really an account of how that comes true, you know. So how does, what do we do with some of these other passages? Because at the end of the day, right after this passage about how his faith will not fail, we can just rely upon him, we can trust in God. Here's a section in the passage about how we need to take up our sword. What possibly could he mean right here? Jesus is not calling his disciples here, though, even though it feels like it on the the outset, to literally take up a sword. We know that is not true because in verse 38, he dismisses that. Verse 38, it says here, Jesus responds to them saying, look, Lord, here's, here's two swords. We got two swords, man. We're, we're good to go. We can fight well. Jesus says at the very end of that verse, he says, it is enough. Basically, that's a way of saying he's dismissing it. He's dismissing this physical sword that they're holding right here in, their, you know, in the moment. And then in verse 51 shows us again when Peter comes swinging swords and clubs, right? He chops the guy's ear off. Jesus is like, this is not what I've called you to do. No more of this, 51. Jesus said, no more of this. And this is showing us that what Jesus means when he said take up the sword was not something literally. He wasn't meaning actually go get a sword. Jesus is talking specifically, I believe, about the sword of the spirit. This is significant. The word of God. In a way that's contrary to us, Jesus is calling us to wage a different kind of war. Not in a way that's maybe natural to us, as, as it is Peter here. A warfare of praying the word of God. Of believing the word of God. Because this is why he's calling us to that. The enemy is about the heart. He's about your heart. He's about what's going on here. He's about what you love. And he wants to rob you of love for God. So the war that we wage... Is killing him by clinging to the gospel. Is killing him by believing in Christ, holding fast to him. And specifically, Ephesians chapter 6 talks about this sword that Jesus, I think, lays out here in, in Luke 22. This sword of the Spirit. There is something in the Word of God that is a way in which the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God Himself, and Acts, the promises that we have in the Scripture. There is something about speaking and devoting ourselves to the Word that is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's the Word of God. The, the, the words that the Holy Spirit Himself has spoken. And when we speak it, and we, when we believe it, and when we cling to it, God moves. God moves. I want you to consider what type of warfare that Jesus has in mind when He says, Take up a sword. Consider Acts chapter 4, verse 25 through 31. So the backside of Peter and John being brought before this council, they were imprisoned and then they were let go. And in verse 25, this is what it says. All of the believers are praying together. And it says, this is what their prayer is. I'm actually going to start in verse 24, sorry. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, look at the warfare here. Look Look at how these believers are waging war against all that's coming against them. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the type of warfare that Jesus has in mind. This is the type of warfare. Take up the sword of the Spirit And use it against the enemy and all the things that come against your life. When we speak the word of God, there is power. There's power. And I want you to specifically see here, too, that, you know, there in in some contemporary circles, Mm -hmm. there has been somewhat of a detachment of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit moves from the word of God itself. And we don't have a category really for that in the Bible. Instead, right here, verse 31 says that as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that led to them clinging and speaking and proclaiming the word of God evermore. Because the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. Do you cling to that? Do you you wrestle with God through the scriptures? Do you fight in your life through the word and with the word? There's one more point I want to bring out here in relation to this passage that I think is really significant. In verse 32, which is, you know, really 31 and 32 in Luke 22. You see that the, the major emphasis here is it pretty much sums up everything that we're saying in verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. One of the ways that we wage war against the enemy, one of the ways that we fight well as a church, a band of brothers and sisters together, is through encouragement. Encouragement is a form of warfare. And I think this is really important for us to see that there is a particular role that encouragement plays in the life of the believer that we need to take seriously. The scripture says right here, Peter, after you have turned, go and strengthen your brothers you know the local church is kind of this base camp where we retreat to restock supplies and restock our ammo so that we can go back out and how we restock and how we refuel is through encouraging one another encouraging one another you know and, and this is you know you you may come to corporate worship on a Sunday morning you may be here this morning and you may be thinking that the only category for you to come and engage in corporate worship is for you to sit there in a posture of receiving because you're not at a mic and you don't have a guitar or you don't have any particular role in the service. But the Bible pictures this this environment of corporate worship where we are all coming and ministering to one another. What you have to offer the body of Christ is not standing on stage. It's before service. It's after service. It's in small groups in homes, praying actively, regularly for your brothers and sisters and intentionally and specifically encouraging them in the gospel. This is not something for the church that is really pressing into the Holy Spirit that we take lightly. It's not trivial, your few words that you have to offer to one of your brothers or sisters in the church. This is warfare. God is woven into the fabric of his victorious plan that will not fail, that that he has accomplished on the cross, where his victorious plan, where he's going to see all the forces and powers of darkness destroyed and pushed back. He is woven into the fabric of that plan. This ministry of encouragement, where you specifically can hear the words of affirmation, can hear the promises of God applied to your life by one of your brothers or sisters, and the forces and powers of darkness are pushed back in your life. Isn't that amazing? When I think about that, that brings totally new perspective to my nonchalant side conversation. It's not trivial, but instead, there is a, there is a pathway forward where every single person that's a part of this body becomes so important and so integral to the ministry of the church because of the ministry of encouragement. I I just want to encourage you right now. I'm going to encourage you. I want to encourage you right now. How is God calling you to do that for someone else today? How is God calling you to do that? You have so much to offer the body of Christ, not because of how great you are, but because of the Holy Spirit inside of you if you believe the gospel. If you've not believed in Christ before and you've never experienced this life we're talking about, come to him. Listen, Jesus Jesus died on the cross and he won the victory in a war that you are losing apart from him. He won the victory in a war that you cannot win apart from him. Come and repent. Bring your sins to Jesus. Confess your sin. Get it out into the light and He will give you a new heart and He will fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit to encourage your other brothers and sisters in ways that you can never imagine. So I want you to just think about what we see here in this passage. The God who prays for us and friends who are committed to sparking victorious joy in one another. That's what this passage is about. The, the enemy of God and against God's people cannot stand against that. It cannot stand against a praying God whose promises are real for us and it cannot stand against an encouraging church who prioritizes the ministry and encouragement for us. The power of the gospel felt in the praying God and his diligent to encourage people. Let that be us. Two things I want to say as we conclude. You have a spiritual authority because of the praying God that nothing can rob you of. you have a spiritual authority that nothing can rob you of. Be bold as you face real spiritual warfare in this life. And on that point, I just want to say this. As we conclude today, I'm going to be available here at the front. Um, if there's some areas in your life where you feel like there's some uh, demonic oppression, I don't want to shy away from that. If that's you today, I would love to pray with you. I would love to talk about that. If there's some areas in your life where you're not sure and you just, you just want prayer and you feel like there's, there's some things that you need to repent of or you need to confess, I want to be available. You can approach any of our elders about that. We would love to pray for you in those ways. But the number one point on that is that you have a spiritual authority because of what we have here in the Scriptures. If you have believed in Christ, nothing can rob you of hope in Christ. Nothing can because of Christ. So be bold as you face spiritual warfare. But number two, two things I'll say. Do not miss this ministry of encouragement. You have a wonderful opportunity right now and every point past this to strengthen your brothers and sisters in the gospel and do not miss it. Respond and strengthen them. You know, one way that we do that as a church is through our group ministry. These smaller groups where we set aside time in our church and smaller groups to gather, to pray for one another, to seek one another, uh, contend for one another in prayer, and to encourage one another. And uh, if, if you're not a member of our church and you're considering uh, to being a part of our body, this is one thing I would encourage you to just get involved in because we have little pockets of, little outposts all over the city of Gainesville where this is happening. And... Um, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to continue to experience the blessing of Christian community. Deidre Bonhoeffer says that Christian community is a grace from above. It's a grace from God. You know, and oftentimes we don't think of it that way. I would encourage you to have that, that lens that, hey, what is available to me by way of Christian community where I get to experience this type of encouragement and this refueling in the promises of God? It's, it's God's grace on my life. Therefore, what does that mean? I should be diligent to seek it out. I should be diligent to go after it. So you have a wonderful opportunity to strengthen your brothers and sisters and do not miss it.